Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. The Canadian government committed in the 2030 Emissions Reduction Plan, which it released earlier this year, to implement clean electricity regulations. So I'm going to talk to Dr. Mark Jackard, who is the Director and Distinguished Professor with the School of Resource and Environmental Management at Simon Fraser University, and the co-author of the September 23rd Policy Options piece, Getting Canada's Proposed Clean Energy Regulations Right to Reverse Our Poor Climate Performance. So welcome to the interview, Mark. Thanks for uh, having me, Markham. Well, look, okay, so there are public consultations in March with a discussion paper. Following the consultations, the government laid out this proposed regulatory framework, and the proposed framework sets out a direction that, in your opinion, raises some substantial concerns. What are, what, give me just an overview of what those are. Uh, Sure. And, and, well, I'll just say in one minute (laughs) that, um, I approach all all climate policies from a lens of someone, I'm on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as a a climate greenhouse gas policy expert of why we failed in the past. And I feel that's where I can bring um, some help. uh, First, because I'm old. And so I've lived through a lot of these failures. And, and secondly, that is my area of expertise. And it, it, become, it becomes more and more interesting, not like what's the right policy, it's why did we fail? So well, look, I'm as, focused as, on that. As a fellow geezer, uh, I, I've been around a while myself and, and, and seen many of the policy fra- uh, failures that uh, no doubt you're referring to. But before we get into the discussion of this proposed regulation, maybe that's a good way to kick off the conversation, is I know you're focused on federal policy. Uh, why are we failing so much? Yeah, so I'm not convinced that we're failing. Um, we had a federal government until 2015, the Harper government, federally, that really didn't want to do anything. They were ragging the puck. They did little things, but not the substantial stuff to actually hit their own target, which was for 2030. And uh, since 2015, I would argue that the federal liberal government that we've had, and now in sort of a coalition with the NDP uh, since the last election, really is quite sincere. But the fun, the in, not the fun, the tragedy is that you can be really sincere and still fail if we look around the planet or even at our own history. And so um, I wouldn't say, why are we failing? We dramatically grew the oil sands under the Harper government, opened the floodgates, and it continues to grow. To, it continued to grow. There's a momentum there. While emissions in the rest of the economy went down. So Canadian emissions have been pretty well flatlined for almost 20 years. They haven't been going up, but they haven't been going down. Well, the oil sands emissions kept going way up. So there's two different things going on in the economy. Okay, well, I can't let that one go because uh, I've been on about the oil sands emissions now for for a couple of years. And in, in my, I wrote a book about it in 2019. And at that time, 
uh, I argue that the, the current, the crop of CEOs, oil sand CEOs at that time got climate change. In fact, if you'll remember back in 2014, 2015, five oil sand CEOs cut a deal, like literally a secret deal with five environmental groups, including the Pembina Institute and uh, a variety of other ones. And that the, what they, the, the agreements they made on the oil sands emissions cap and carbon pricing and methane emissions uh, got, were incorporated into Rachel Notley's NDP government climate leadership plan. And so they got it. And I argued that it was in their self-interest to get it. And they would continue to do that. Then they elected, then they threw that generation of CEOs out, turfed them out in their ear, brought in a new generation, the current crop, who just are foot draggers and uh, and are show almost no interest whatsoever in reducing emissions. So if you want to look for put a face on failure, there it is. Yeah, but I don't. Um, but I'll just. I mean, I'm agreeing with you 90. percent But I would say that that group that I don't, and I know you're not glorifying them, like bad, good guys, now bad guys. They also, there was some good tricks in there. They said, we favor carbon pricing, which they, they knew is, a, so I've heard that from Exxon and others for decades now, because they know politicians can't put that one in. So it helps to make you look holy. They also did a cap on oil sands emissions that was what we call non-binding. It was well above the current level of emissions, so it makes you look good. I would argue that the, some of the current leadership in the oil and gas industry are as sincere as the group you're talking about. But you really, um, and, and, I, and I'm working with some of them uh, in what seems to be quite sincere, and they're helping out um, and helping to push policy, but you really do need the policy. And the, Rach, the Notley government was really good on understanding that, and it just didn't stay in power long enough. And that's always the challenge. You have a policy window and you've got to move on it. And that's why I'm so interested in these federal policies that are being designed and coming out in being done as quickly as possible and not being watered down. So that's why, what led me to write the electricity piece. All right, we're going to get into electricity, but I'm not going to let you off the hook. We will come back for another interview to talk about the oil sands and oil and gas emissions in Canada, which make up 26% of national emissions, cannot get to net zero without the oil and gas industry. And I have a little different take on, on where the oil sands companies are coming from. So we'll leave it at that. Uh, and let's talk about your paper. All right, so let's go through some of the uh, issues as you laid it out in your uh, policy options uh, article. Uh, address affordability and equity directly, uh, federally and provincially. What's your argument here? Oh, okay. Um, so we kind of say that, but there's a nuance in there. Basically, the federal government is being hounded by different interests, whether it's electricity generators in some places or provincial governments, to say, you know, don't, don't do these things because they will lead to higher costs of electricity in our jurisdictions. The cheapest option right now would be to have more natural gas, both for replacing coal and for some growth, and to make sure that you have reliability when you're also developing wind and solar, which are, uh, you know, not as predictable. And, um, and so that's kind of uh, what, what they're faced with. And so the arguments are, it won't be reliable, it won't be affordable. 
And actually, what we kind of say in that article was, don't let this stop you. And one thing you can do is the federal government can get involved in helping um, with the transition, especially in provinces like Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and uh, Nova Scotia, which uh, are either have a lot of fossil fuel generation or have a lot of growth with not a lot of alternative options. I'm thinking Ontario here. Um, so yes, it can help with that. But, I, but we also say in there, and this is coming from a former Brit head of the British Columbia Utilities Commission, so a regulator in the, uh, a couple of decades ago, where it's a provincial jurisdiction, the energy sector, the electricity sector is provincial jurisdiction. There's a lot of provincial ownership in that sector. There's provincial regulation. And the mandate of these regulators is to keep the lights on. So I don't think we should panic like that, oh, it's the fault of the federal government. You can be sure that provincial regulators and generators and system operators and ministries are going to be motivated for reliability. And also they've always had mandates to think about affordability and they, that comes out in rate design. It comes out in how energy efficiency programs are targeted and so on. So a little nuance there in my answer, Markham, is that I'm saying the feds can do things, but I'm also saying they should not be held hostage to provinces who are unwilling to do things and are going to blame the feds. The provinces won't get away with that. If, you're a, if you live in Ontario and your electricity prices go up, you know, Doug Ford can blame the federal government till the cows come home. They're going to say, what are you doing for us? Well, you, you put your finger on the problem, I think, is, is that the two the, the provinces that are moving in either have natural a lot of natural gas and are, are uh, uh, bringing in more are Alberta and Ontario. And, you know, you mentioned that Ontario doesn't have a lot of options. Well, one of the options is it took off the table was wind and solar. And it seems to me, you know, I mean, there's a lot of voices in Ontario that are not happy about ramping up natural gas. And I know the Ontario Clean Energy, Clean Air Committee, I think it's called, you know, estimates that that'll go, emissions will go up 400 to 600% in the, in the power sector. And why wouldn't you put in wind or solar at 30 to $40 a megawatt hour as opposed? So that seems like they do have options. Well, this might bring us back to, a, and I don't want to do that right here, but an argument that you and I had once about backlash meal. Um, and, and the reason is that you're just telling me that wind and solar and you gave a price for it. Wind and solar doesn't produce the same product as a natural gas plant. They both generate kilowatt hours. One generates kilowatt hours that are dispatchable and one generates kilowatt hours that are not dispatchable at 100% when you need it. And that's a huge difference. And so I am sympathetic to um, and, and arguments like uh, those of Ontario or others saying we need reliable electricity. Even, you know, aside from natural gas, look, look at what happens in Europe when they're so dependent on wind and solar and don't have reliable backup. What we said, I can't remember it's in the article or an earlier version that got cut, is I listed through all the technologies that you can use to back up wind and solar, all of which are commercial, have been deployed somewhere in the world. So it's a little more expensive, but you're right, you can have wind and solar and you don't need to build natural gas to back them up. You can be using your hydropower, doing more interties. You can be using some biomass, even the nuclear itself, 
Um, you can be using hydrogen in, in, in turbines and so on. Uh, there are the energy storage of various kinds, battery banks, the vehicles that are plugged into the grid. There's so many ways to back up wind and solar. It, you can't use the fact that it's wind and solar and it's non-dispatchable as a reason to say you have to build natural gas turbines. Well, I'm not a professor uh, of economics at the SFU, but I think you just made my argument for me. Because essentially, that's exactly right, is wind and solar are, I mean, in Alberta, the, la the 2018 auction was $37 a megawatt hour and and, and uh, prices have fallen since. And we know now we've had, we've had years of experience. Look at what California is doing with the stationary storage at the utility scale. It was a big factor in not having outages this year and, and all of the other things that you talk about. I agree. So then there, there are alternatives to natural gas. There are alternatives to coal that are reasonably priced and clean. Right. That, yeah, yeah, well, except for your word, reasonably priced. Um, that's, you know, some academics say that, like Mark Jacobson at Stanford. Most academics that I follow uh, who are less with this one agenda are a little more cautious about that. And it's been really interesting, the economics coming out of Europe, not to do with the natural gas, but just to how do you reliably back up wind and solar and what does it actually cost? Uh, and it really depends on the resources in any given jurisdiction. Obviously, in British Columbia or Quebec, uh, with all that hydropower and stored energy and water behind reservoirs, you can back it up really quite cheaply. Uh, but it's not the same everywhere. And that's the only point I was making, Markham. But we do agree that this is not a reason to build a bunch of natural gas plants. And that was the point of our article. So you're, it's nothing new from what you already read. Okay, we're agreeing on this. That's I, I love this when we agree and still argue about it. It makes for a good conversation. Okay, well, let's talk about getting carbon pricing right, because this is a thing that, that uh, I still do not understand why elect the uh, output-based carbon pricing was applied to uh, the electricity system. So for those uh, viewers who aren't familiar with this, basically an output-based system is uh, you give you provide a discount uh, to the producer of the good, like whether it's electricity or oil or gas or whatever it is, uh, because if you apply the full price, then you'll you'll make them susceptible to competition from jurisdictions that don't have carbon pricing or or climate policies. And so in, in Alberta, for instance, the one I'm most familiar with is the oil sands of the oil and gas, where they get 80 to 90 percent discount. Uh, so you know, fifty dollar uh, of uh, a ton. Carbon pricing, you wind up paying a couple of bucks a barrel, which is almost inconsequential. Uh, and it, it's not like capital can get up and walk out of the electricity system. You can't move that, you know, you can't move a, a generating plant or transmission lines to another jurisdiction to evade climate policy. So why did they put output-based pricing apply? What did they apply it to electricity in the first place? Well, I, I agree with everything you said, Markham. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. Uh, and... And so I, and I think your description of output-based pricing is, is really um, dead on. Discount, or we also say they get a production subsidy, like how much steel did I make or how much electricity. But in my book, uh, Sustainable, uh, no, the, the Simpsons Guide to Climate Success, which you've interviewed me on and came out a couple of years ago, which is still very apropos, uh, read the, people should read the, um, the, the final chapter and, uh, on strategy 
and reductions, if you're a country that wants to move ahead, even though we don't have a global binding agreement with penalties, then you would work on your electricity sector and your transportation sector and your building sector and land use. And, and so that would mean that you would go full on with electricity and decarbonizing it. You wouldn't apply this output-based pricing system. So you and I are in complete agreement. Now, politically, we know why the liberals did it. They, they were bringing in all of this carbon pricing in 2016, 17, 18, and they were also hoping to get reelected. And so, and the challenge with electricity if transportation, if we put out a zero emission policy in transportation, the costs will be roughly equal across the country, not totally, but roughly, likewise buildings. Um, but when you do it in electricity, Canada's this incredible patchwork of hydropower systems in which a carbon pricing policy costs nothing. And, uh, you know, it may be on growth, yes, but other, and other systems that are very fossil fuel. Uh, endowed. So the federal government, not even sure if it would even win in the courts with carbon pricing yet. Remember, they did these things prior, said, yikes, we need to try to get New Brunswick on side and Nova Scotia on side. Maybe we'll never elect anyone in Alberta and Saskatchewan, but we still need to try to keep them on side to win a court case that we've been paying attention. And so that's why I would argue, I, I wasn't in the room, but I would say that's why it's there. Is, should it be in there? Well, now I think it's a mistake. And so that's why our recommendations in this article that we're referring to was to get it out as fast as possible for the reasons that you just gave, which is that you don't need to have it in electricity. You don't need the output-based pricing system with its discounts. Now, when the uh, United Conservative Party under Jason Kenney won the Alberta election in 2019, one of the changes they made early on was changes to the uh, Notley NDP government's uh, industrial emitter carbon price. And the, it was criticized and praised uh, by uh, some of your colleagues like uh, uh, Blake Schaefer at the University of Calgary and Andrew Leach at the University of Alberta. And they said, you know, not so good for what it did on the oil sand side. It diluted the effect of the carbon pricing. But on the electricity side, it was actually a big improvement. Is that the kind of model that you have in mind? Uh, no, um, because, you know, when you said discounts, the funny thing it about, is about output-based pricing is it does, um, let's say I'm a, a, a coal plant and you can say, well, it's only charging me on part of my emissions. But actually, if I reduce all of my emissions, I can sell credits. So if the carbon price is at $50 per ton, um, I'm actually motivated to go from coal to natural gas. And so that's what happened. So in Alberta, for example, under that, the, the program that, that was modified um, by Jason Kenney. And I think that would have ultimately happened even in the version that um, Rachel Notley had put in. It was just that there was some improvements they put on, like how are you treating coal versus natural gas? Are you, uh, are you treating them separately or can, can there be a benefit to, to fuel switching, basically, even operational decisions? And that was a big thing. They were just dispatching the natural gas way more than the coal. It was the first one to get cut out of the system because of that price, uh, that it would be an advantage for, for the company. So, yeah, but, but, but in the long run here, what we're saying is, look, the federal government says it's putting in a clean electricity 
regulation. And so that regulation is saying, which actually Stephen Harper started this when it, with, uh, with the coal plants, uh, it was just that it was very lenient. It is saying, we're gonna, I'm sorry, you can't build anything starting a year or two from now. And eventually you gotta phase out anything that's above a, a tiny threshold of emissions per kilowatt hour. So the regulation's a good thing. It's what I have recommended for decades. And, and so that's all good. Our only concern is what I started at the outset of our show is if there are kind of loopholes or things where industry might be saying, oh, you mean this doesn't come into effect for 12 years? Then let's play regulatory chicken. Let's not do anything and hope that a Pierre Poiliev or someone else, uh, Stephen Harper gets elected between now and 13 years from now and guts the whole thing. So the problem with the current that we were worried about, Jason, uh, Dion, and I, is, is that it, it it's still not strong enough in, being, in saying, you got to start doing things right now. That's what we, we were challenged by. Now, uh, another section of your uh, policy options article argued that the, the regulation has to be made genuinely net zero. And you talked about the uh, offsets uh, offsetting, you need a negative uh, emissions to offset perhaps some positive emissions. I, I wasn't quite clear on that. Maybe you could uh, explain that. Yeah. Uh, as we really start to hone in on this net zero, it's going to mean different things to different people. Uh, and that's how you get buy-in, right? So environmentalists see the word zero. Uh, some, in, some industries see the word, oh, net, you mean offsets, you know, I can pay someone else to reduce emissions. And, and uh, I don't know if I've done an interview with you on this before, but I have uh, short four minute pieces on my, um, on my uh, blog. And also in the book, I have a chapter on this in the citizen's guide, uh, basically that um, many offsets are problematic because they say, I want emissions I pay me and emissions will be lower than they otherwise would have been. Um, I will, you know, put an extra capture device, or, or no, not a capture device. I will just plant trees and don't worry, they won't burn down in the next 200 years. So a, a lot of challenges like that. There are two types of, um, of offsets that people like me who are skeptical otherwise are in favor of. One is direct air capture, literally some kind of mechanical, chemical way of taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and making sure you bury it permanently in sedimentary layers uh, under the surface of the earth. The second one is where you actually grow plants or trees in order to, put the, to burn this or gasify it and burn it in, um, in an, an electricity generating plant, for example, capture the carbon dioxide, don't let it go back up into the air and bury that. Both of these kinds involve actually taking carbon from the atmosphere and storing it back in the earth, truly reversing what we humans have been doing in digging up carbon in fossil fuels, burning them and leaving it in the atmosphere, which is why I'm also in favor of a lot of kinds of bioenergy things, especially if we can link them up. So Jason uh, Dion and I in that article just really also tried to do a warning to, that because government is gonna be under a lot of pressure, whether from industry 
uh, the electricity generating industry or provincial governments who are not favorable to allow them a lot of offsets and a lot of different kinds of offsets that I think I see more of as a loophole rather than a legitimate. Well, I, I obviously don't understand uh, emissions trading, emission credit trading as, as well as you do, but I've always been skeptical of it. And, and I think that there are, um, you know, we're reading articles now about, you know, how uh, these credits were extended and, and they turned out to be kind of dodgy because the, the assets, whether they be, you know, wooded lands or some kind of uh, whatever the, the offset was based on tended to be, you know, poorly described or poorly accounted for or poor, you know, that sort of thing. So, and, and the, and, but the final piece here, and you can maybe convey this to your oil sand CEOs next time you you're in a consultation with them is when the oil industry wants offsets to be a big part of climate policy, alarm bells start ringing. And yeah, that's absolutely. what they've been, they've been arguing that for years. I remember going back to Canadian association of petroleum producers, 2018 climate, climate policy and you know emissions offsets were a big big issue and you know no surprise it becomes an excuse not to actually do the hard work on the ground to reduce the emissions at, at, when, when it's being produced so, so I, I i agree with all you've said but but i, I do want to step in here a bit because you started it and i wrote it down by saying you've been always suspicious of credit trading uh I've got nothing wrong with credit trading. That's how, but I, offsets is different. Offsets yeah, sorry, sorry part for the of credit trading. But let, let's say when the US put a cap on sulfur emissions from uh, all coal plants, they set up a trading system. Now we economists love that because we'll point out to society, you might get the same reductions and the people who find it expensive will buy credits from the people who find it difficult, but they're all regulated. They're all part of a cap that goes down. And so you do achieve your environmental objective. And so we, we have systems like that. It's only when you say, oh, you know what? Let's go outside this system and buy offsets from farmers in Alberta or tree uh, forest managers in Ecuador uh, or whatever who are not in under a cap. So under a cap, you have credit trading if you have a no cap and just say, let's do offsets, um, that's a kind of trading, but it's trading when the parties are not both capped. So we can't be sure of the future outcome. So that, that's a distinction that I think is really important. And I agree with you. And it's, it's one that I didn't understand as well as you've explained it to. So I think that was a very useful uh, explanation on your part. So thank you for that. Uh, well, look, um, if they bring in this regulation, uh, is there any chance that they will, I mean, well, I was going to say, is there any chance that they will be taken to court by provinces? And I would say th that seems to be almost inevitable these days. I mean, you know, the UCP in, in Alberta and the Ford government in Ontario sue every climate policy that comes along from the federal government. But what, is there any chance that they might win? They haven't won yet. Might they win this one? Well, I'm really glad you just asked this question because it's sort of on my little list of things I'd hope we would cover, that was one of them. So just to be clear, I mean, almost all the listeners will know, um, energy is provincial jurisdiction under the Canadian constitution and electricity seems even more so. It's like this, almost like a public good uh, that people are entitled to and provincial governments really have the responsibility for that. 
So um, when I've been involved um, in this process, in another one 10 years ago, in another one 20 years ago, and maybe 30 years ago, scary, um, we, I've, I and others have always said, remember, and you remember this famous Bill Clinton line, it's the economy stupid. So here, what you say is it's greenhouse gases stupid. Keep reminding yourself, if you're the feds, that the, you have the authority because environment is both provincial and federal jurisdiction. And the courts now have said, oh my goodness, when it's greenhouse gases, the feds especially have important jurisdiction because they need to make international agreements. It's a global problem. We need our national government to have some rights here. So if the federal, if the, to the extent that what this electricity policy looks like, is it strictly a greenhouse gas policy that improves its chances. And that's why I made this point earlier in our discussion even, where I said, um, be careful of the Fed saying, we're gonna come in and we're gonna ensure electricity reliability, and we're gonna ensure uh, affordability for different customer groups and so on. Um, the, that could be putting your feet in the quicksand. It's a provincial jurisdiction how equitable the electricity system is, uh, or from a, a cost point of view, how reliable it is. And I think the Fed should say, we're willing to help out um, provinces that for whom this is going to be a bit more costly. And we can do that with some kinds of uh, subsidy money or, or Jason Dion in our article even says, if you're still doing carbon pricing, use that money to go back to the utilities in those provinces where that's collected. But otherwise, don't talk a lot about, um, about things that are clearly provincial jurisdiction and focus on greenhouse gases. You have the authority, make that the focus of the policy, and they mostly do that. Okay, uh, we're getting to the end of the interview, and I, I want to ask this question. You know, I've discussed it a little bit in previous interviews, but we, you raised the issue in the article about reliability. And we've seen the experience that... Uh, California and Texas most famously have had over the last year or two with unreliability. Uh, so what role can markets play in providing reliability? And yeah. this is something I'm fascinated with because you alluded to it earlier. You said, you know, Canada's a patchwork of basically elect electricity fiefdoms. Every province has got their own little, you know, fiefdom. And, and we do some trading, most trading north and south, a little bit of trading east and west. But then again, getting back to what you said, we have these wonderful hydro resources that can act as, as batteries, basically, for, for intermittent uh, power generation. So it seems that if you want to lower cost, if you want to take advantage, make better use of your assets, make, and you, again, how you know what has value? Uh, intermittent... Uh, Dispatchable power has more value than non-dispatchable power. So hydro now, instead of just using it as dispatchable power, you use it as storage, and then it has a higher value. Is is one argument I've seen your call your economic colleagues make. So all, what I'm getting at is is do you see as a, an issue of to address the cost of power and the reliability of power using more east-west markets? Right. So basically. <clears throat> Um, and, and really good work by uh, a shout out to Madeline McPherson, a professor at UVic, uh, who runs sort of total electricity system uh, modeling for the country. Um, and uh, even she did a study for the David Suzuki Foundation just this last year, uh, showing 
that what what all of us kind of know, which is the cheapest the cheapest way to rapidly expand electricity. Remember, it's not just a, a static electricity system. It has to grow and double uh, across the country. The cheapest way to make that, a lot of that growth should be wind and solar. For the reasons you said, it, it is very cheap, but it's not dispatchable. The cheapest way to dramatically grow wind and solar and some other uh, renewables and, and maybe even some carbon capture storage though, is to expand the grid interties east-west in the country because we've got these great, you know, Alberta connect to British Columbia, Manitoba hydropower with Saskatchewan, Ontario and Quebec. And there is then some work in Atlantic Canada with uh, grid interties to, to, to take advantage of hydropower, especially in Newfoundland, for all the wind in PEI and so on. So that's kind of fun and, 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 and it's great. Um, but grid interties are tricky for the reasons I mentioned before. Electricity's provincial jurisdiction, provincial voters, they, they're not gonna blame Trudeau. You know, uh, Jason Kenney or uh, Doug Ford will try to blame Trudeau if there's a reliability problem, but they're gonna say, what did you do about it? You're my local guy. And so, this is why there's a reluctance to build grid interties. And you see that in other federal systems, whether it's the US, India, um, uh, even China to some extent. Uh, and so I would hope we'll see more of that. But if we don't, there are other options. So again, I push back on the argument that you cannot expand clean electricity. There are other ways of storing electricity within each jurisdiction. They're just more expensive. So let's hope that, you know, maybe not at the level of provincial premiers, but instead it kind of happens at the level of utilities. But it is difficult also if you're expanding interties or doing a whole new line. It's very difficult to do linear developments uh, in Canada today, whether it's a pipeline or an electric uh, high voltage transmission line. So it's, it's, not, it's not easy to expand this intertie. Look, let's, let's wrap up the, the conversation now, Mark, with uh, your take on uh, the, is this clean electricity regulation, uh, is it a good start? Are we most of the way, like, are we like at the two yard line, we just need to push it over the, the goal line with some important amendments and tweaks? Or does the federal government need to go back into the drawing board and take another crack at it? No, no, I, I think it's really good. I, uh, I'm, I've, I'm all hands on deck for a, a couple of years now as a, you know, freely advising provincial governments, federal governments, we're in a policy window and it could close at any time. So when I make it, I'm just like, oh, but make sure there's no gap make sure there's no loophole, there's no escape valve, make sure you get it implemented right away and make sure that the incentives are there for people to start investing differently right now, not play regulatory chicken and wait. And I think the policy, their, their draft policy uh, is, is a great start, but I'm just, I've seen too much in the past where just a few little things like that get pushed in and at the last moment by some interest and then the thing's way less effective than we'd hoped. So that's why I raised this call, this alarm. Okay, cause for optimism, but uh, uh, we shouldn't take our eye off the ball. Yep. Got it. Okay, Mark, thank you. Always appreciate your insights. Uh, good chat with you again. Thanks, Mark. I'm, uh, always a pleasure on my side too.